kidnapped, hooded, and stripped, serving years in prison without charge or trial. The trials of Muazenberg are daunting and horrific, to say the least. Serving time in the infamous Bagram prison and Guantanamo Bay. What's taking place down there is responsible, it's humane, it's legal. Now, although Beg has been declared an innocent man, the memories and his pursuit for justice remain. Join us as he walks us through his harrowing journey. But a word of caution, the themes discussed can be confronting and traumatic for some. And in the midst of all of this, while I'm tied down to the ground, with a strap across my legs and my hands and legs shackled, I, I sense that there's a person to my left and he says, Hal salayta salat al-maghrib, ya And I thought to myself, how could you think mm. of this right now? Mm. He says, have you prayed your maghrib prayers? She contacted me on Facebook and she said, brother, were you in Guantanamo? And I was surprised to say, yes, I was. She said, so was I. Please go back and tell the brothers that I am one of your sisters today. Allah. I cannot forgive you for what you did to somebody else. I can forgive you for what you did to me a hundred times. Assalamu alaikum. We are joined here today with uh, Mu'azzam Beg. And for those who are not familiar with this story, this is Mu'azzam Beg that was held in Guantanamo. This is Mu'azzam Beg that was held in Bagram. And this is Mu'azzam Beg who's joining us today. And he's also, for those who don't know, a descendant of Genghis Khan, I believe. <laughs> It's my pleasure and honor to be speaking to you brothers uh, in Australia as part of the network. Uh, and I pray that inshallah we will have a, a, a riveting discussion. And yes, for my sins, I believe I'm told that I'm a descendant of uh, the Mongols, but then <laughs> so is I think a, a, a sixth of the whole planet. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, here today. Um, I, let's just get straight into it. I, uh, growing up in Birmingham, I believe, um, I've heard of the tales that, you know, Birmingham is a breeding ground of lots of different people, lots of different ideas. Um, and I remember one of your early experiences growing up in Birmingham was that of just outside your local masajid, uh, you were beaten up roughly with bottles thrown over your head um, to the point where you said, uh, I believe, was it La ilaha illallah? And to which by subhanAllah, just by that, the police actually came in and stopped that. My question to that would be, um, how has this growing up in, in that kind of environment and what's led to your detainment in Afghanistan, your, your kidnap in Pakistan? How did this early event in your, child, in your teenage years um, shape your understanding of the world? Uh, actually, subhanAllah, um, in my teens, I was, uh, I guess, confused like many others during that period in the 80s. We were uh, second generation. Uh, my parents originally from Pakistan, struck India. And I didn't know was whether I was British, whether I was Pakistani, whether I was Asian, uh, was I Muslim? And if I was, what did that mean? Um, but that fateful night when I was beaten up by skinheads, and it's important to remember this wasn't, they didn't just jump on me. We fought back. We put a whole load of them in hospital. And so it was that kind of situation in which we are um, defending ourselves against these neo-Nazi racists who would often walk up and down the streets and do the Nazi Sikhal salute. So we'd fight against these guys. And it was one of one such occasion 
when I was outside the masjid that I would never go into. And um, they had surrounded one of my friends and surrounded me. They, uh, I, I, I fought to try to rescue my friend and they left my friend and came onto me and surrounded me and started to kick me with steel toe-cap boots and wow. uh, bottles into my face. And I was bleeding all over in my mouth and so forth. And I thought, that's it. This is the end. I'm, I'm going mm. to die. I didn't know that much about my faith, but I knew that... Uh, if you say that I, I knew that hadith afterwards, of course, many years later, but I knew the concept even back then. And that was, these are going to be my last words. And I thought they were. Uh, and then as I, I screamed them out, this, these, uh, um, th- these skinheads disappeared. They ran off. And I thought, subhanAllah, look at the power of these words. <laughs> and simultaneously, they, they, they ran off. Okay. But they ran off, I think, because the, a police car came around and, uh, um, you know, that was kind of a divine intervention, but at the same time, something that was very connected to the dunya as well at mm. the same time. And so that part of that journey, trying to figure out who I was as I, as I progressed in life, um, the one identity I started to become much more mm. comfortable with and connected to was the one that saved me that day. Mm. Uh, and that was my Muslim identity. I had plenty of friends who was Hindus and Sikhs and uh, Christians and atheists and so forth, but my connection to my faith uh, was something that started to build and progress in me uh, uh, during that period of time. I think this is the age-old uh, problem that many people face even now. Uh, people in my generation, especially those over the diaspora background, is trying to find who am I? Am I really British? Am I am I black? Am I Muslim? But I I think you had stated in an interview that you started speaking with a Patois accent as well. I mean, my cousin, my cousins, you gotta love them, but uh, they would also have that similar identity clash and they wouldn't know. But as you just articulated that, essentially what saved you from all this was religion, I guess. You found your, you found your answers through Islam. Uh, yes, of course, uh, you, you're right. I grew up with a lot of Jamaicans, people who came from the West Indies and we spoke with a Patwa accent, you know, and we used to talk <laughs> like that because it yeah. was cool to be like, it wasn't cool to be young and Asian because Asians were known to be, the studious, uh, knew to be known to, to keep the head down, not to fight back. But being Jamaican was known to be rebellious. Their music, their culture, their fight back, fighting against the, against the police, riots. That was the cool culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was that what some of us adopted in our confusion that we thought perhaps mm-hmm. this is what we are. We're darker skinned. We're not black. We're not white. We kind of sit, fit in between. But all the way along, for me, always, it was always, there were always signs of my being in the midst of something. Uh, my closest friend died. He was a very good looking young man. But when his body turned up after being two weeks in, in, in Spain uh, and having died, uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, he died drunk. And when his body turned up, that beautiful young man looked horrible. He looked like something out of a horror film. And I started to ask these questions about where would he be? Where is he going? What happens to a Muslim when he dies in a state that's not in Islam? Oh, you believe, stand, <clears throat> fear Allah as he should be feared and do not die except for in a state of Islam. Mm. And my closest friend had died in this position. So I started to ask myself very crucial questions about uh, the soul's journey after death, about my connection to Islam, about his connection. Can I pray for him? How do I pray for him? Which direction am I going in if I'm connected to, to people in this direction? 
So that was all part of the kind of learning journey, uh, which eventually took me to that connection with uh, Muslims in Bosnia who were blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Slavic, yet getting and were also partying, drinking, didn't know anything about their deen, but they were getting butchered mm. just because their name was Ahmadovic or mm. because they they uh, went to the mosque maybe once or twice a year. That was enough for uh, for these people to face Be the killed. biggest genocide. Yeah. Mm. Genocide, brother. Genocide mm. um, in Europe, the biggest genocide after World War II. I think, so the scenes that you've witnessed as a young, young teen uh, followed, th followed you through the rest of, for most of your life, I believe. And I, uh, and I understand you actually went to Srebrenica, I believe. You were actually there. Uh, so not Srebrenica. I was in Travnik. I was in Zenica. I was in Mostar. I was in many of these cities. Uh, many times I went during, took aid convoys. I also joined the uh, foreign volunteer force of the army of Bosanska, which was essentially the Mujahideen. Mm -hmm. So I took... Uh, more steps than just to say, okay, I'm going to take aid over because sisters were telling us there, and I met one sister who'd been, uh, you know, she'd been gang raped, uh, and she she said in in words that were translated to me, uh, what's the point of you guys bringing aid and food to us then when this is happening to us? So of mm -hmm. course that was a time where people, and you know, he had the United Nations all present there from Americans, British, Pakistanis, mm -hmm. Turks, Malaysians watching their armed to the teeth, watching these massacres, these mass rape camps um, uh, exist and nobody doing a single thing about it. So, of course, this was a great uh, test for me as an ordinary person to say that I used to fight skinheads on the streets because of what they did to, to us here. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to give up that fight just because it becomes more intense over, over here. Bosnia was a total miscarriage of justice. I remember when I was very, very young, I believe maybe about 10 or 11, I was actually with my father. My father had this big storage unit of all his books that he would publish and, and whatnot. And I picked up one book and was on the Bosnian genocide. And I used to ask him, ask him questions unremittedly about it. And I don't think that nowadays we learn about this stuff. Uh, it's important for anybody. It's important in history fact to learn about what happened. I mean, we hear about the atrocities, the mass killings, the genocide that took place in World War II with the Nazis and the Jews. And then we look at our Muslim brothers as well. And it's just, a, for some, it's just a, a memory in the past, but nothing that we've learned from. And history, what do we know? History always repeats itself. And the other thing that we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. I guess seeing that unfold on the ground when you're you know, in Bosnia, seeing the UN armed to the teeth, as you said, doing absolutely nothing. As a young Muslim man, I guess, how did that shape your understanding of what worldly justice looks like uh, well you know when a person's forming his kind of nascent new uh political identity trying mm. to figure out where does he fit where does islam fit you already see what's happening in palestine at that time you know my uh, palestine was well known that what, what we see happening now in palestine was still happening back then uh back 30 odd years ago so there was no difference you saw kashmir you saw other places where muslim land and places were occupied uh, and you saw double standards you saw for example the Western nations invade Iraq in the first Gulf War mm. uh, after Kuwait had been invaded by, by Iraq as a response. Um, and it was done within days, literally. But these conflicts as other places where people were Muslims were getting killed en masse for decades, uh, there was no intervention. So you clearly saw a double standard, at least me as a young man, that's how it appeared to me. 
And so going to Bosnia and trying to do my little bit, whatever I could, was just that out of desperation. Of course, these jobs are the jobs of governments. These jobs are the jobs of people who are in power, who have uh, who have the military force, not of a young guy off the streets of Birmingham who, 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 who um, you know, is just walking into, into adult life. Uh, and yet here was the, the conundrum for, for mankind. Nobody's doing anything. In Srebrenica, the biggest genocide of people in Europe took place after World War II under the watch of the Dutch United Nations forces. Um, they invited the Muslims to come here and said, you will be protected. And of course, they left and they left the Muslims under Ratko Mladic to mm. face that genocide of 8,000 young men and boys. And what I think just before the genocide took place, his, what was his words? That you're free to leave, you're able to get on the bus and travel wherever, wherever you like, or something along those lines. And then the next day, I mean, these scenes haunt us. I remember watching a video of a father who was entrapped by with all these, well, with his guards and, um, you know, he's calling out for his son, son, it's okay, it's okay, they're not, they won't do anything, they won't do anything, come, come, and, you know, the next thing that you know is that they're, they're digging their own graves, so. Subhanallah. Yeah, exactly, literally, they were literally digging their own graves. It's a horrific pattern, I guess that continues. So you left to live in Afghanistan, and following the US invasion, you went to Pakistan. Now we'll get straight into it. While living in Pakistan with your family, your home is invaded by US soldiers, military, and even from what I understand, uh, an organized uh, faction from the MI5 or people from British intelligence, they were present during that home invasion. What was going through your mind at that one point? And sorry for taking you there, but like, I, I feel like... I mean, so just to backtrack a little bit, I'd gone to Afghanistan uh, mm. before 9-11 happened. I was working on a project to build a school for girls. The Taliban were in power as they are now. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as then, uh, they did allow female education because I was involved in, in helping to set up a, a, a girls' school. Uh, they, were, they, of course, limited it and they wanted it, uh, you know, Muslim curricula as opposed to Western curriculum. And they were against Western uh, intervention in their kind of education system. But that's what I was doing there. And when the 9-11 attacks happened uh, and the U.S. invasion began, we literally saw cruise missiles, vacuum bombs, carpet bombs, smart bombs, 15,000-pound daisy-cutter bombs all landing in Afghanistan and causing the equivalent of, uh, you know, four or five 9-11s in Afghanistan just in the first few days, let alone over the next decades. And of course, um, they were dropping, they were sending planes, uh, the Americans were sending planes before they dropped the bombs uh, with leaflets. And these leaflets fell, like uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, mm. uh, snowflakes in December in Chicago. And these leaflets offered a bounty for each person who a, another person could suspect of being Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. So essentially hundreds and hundreds of people were handed over um, for bounty money. And that's exactly one of the reasons why they came to my house, took me in the middle of the night in front of my wife and children. It was Pakistani intelligence and CIA. Uh, British intelligence agents were involved. They weren't physically present then, but mm -hmm. they were all involved later in the interrogations, as were the, the CIA, as were uh, military intelligence. And they all were involved. In fact, I would tell you this, and you'd probably be shocked to hear this. 
that the intelligence services of almost every despotic country you can think of took part, whether it was in Guantanamo and, and or elsewhere. Chinese intelligence was interrogating the Uyghurs. Libyan intelligence was interrogate, interrogating the Libyans. Um, uh, Moroccan intelligence was interrogating the Moroccans. The Americans didn't care which um, human rights violator was taking part now. They said either you are with us or you're against us. And in mm -hmm. that, they didn't care uh, which rights, rules, regulations, and principles were broken. SubhanAllah. I th yeah, I think it's, we could honestly speak to you about for days about this, but you've mentioned a lot. But uh, you didn't obviously know all of this. You didn't know, I don't know, were you aware that this was CIA, this was uh, Pak Pakistani intelligence forces that were ultimately knocking on your door with no badges yeah. at midnight, half past, was it, half past 12 perhaps, knocking on your door. Next thing you know, you're, you're hooded, you're cuffed, your kids are mostly asleep, your wife, I don't know what she's doing. And then you're just taken and you're put in the back of their car. But luckily you had a, a phone with you, right? Yeah, subhanAllah. I mean, this is, this is, this is all the blessing and qadr from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You just don't know. Um, that sometimes you detest the thing and Allah places a great deal of good therein. The good in this was just the ability for me. I was going, what was happening to me was happening to hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. Pakistan was selling people over for bounty money mm -hmm. without any legal process. These guys who turned up to my house, I always believed in right in the beginning, I thought these are, um, you know, thieves, there are armed robbers. They've come mm -hmm. to steal money from me, perhaps because I'm British and a foreigner living in this land. Mm -hmm. They didn't present any um, identification or uniforms. And one put a gun to my head and they, they surrounded me and put, when I opened the door, put my hands mm -hmm. behind my back, tied them, tied my legs, carried me off into the back of this vehicle. Uh, but as you said, they didn't search me. And that made me believe even further that these are, these are uh, um, robbers because police would search you. And so when they took me eventually to the secret location before they did, there's like these two white guys sitting at the front of this vehicle who, you know, tell me that you can either answer our questions here or in Guantanamo. They're mm. clearly white Americans dressed as Pakistanis looking really bad because they're not fooling anybody. Mm. And uh, when they took me to this secret facility, I put mine in my pocket and I've got my phone. So I pick up the phone. The first person I call is a friend who got asked him to go and check on my wife uh, because I think they've taken all of their phones too. Uh, and the second person I phoned was my father in Britain in the UK. And I told him, I said, I was whispering down the phone and said, Dad, I've been kidnapped. I don't know who these people are, but there are Americans present. And after that, the battery died. So I could tell him that. And of course, that was, it's like out of the film mm. that you are telling your father that this is happening. And he does not hear from you again for the next several months. Um, and you, he doesn't see you again for the next several years. Uh, this is the kind of, you know, the introduction to U.S. custody. And then you were swift, uh, probably not so swiftly, I should say, uh, put on the plane. And then on, upon that, you encountered a man who, subhanAllah, in, in a, when you're thinking, this is it, I mean, this is a life or death situation. But the person that accompanied you, who was probably also detained, said to you, brother, have you prayed? What was going through your mind? Uh, do you think, how could that person, in all due credit, in the situation that you're in, how could you be like, think, subhanAllah, how can you be thinking about prayer? I, I don't even know where I am, but subhanAllah, he's just like, have you prayed your maghrib salah? 
You know, this is what, what to me, this uh, to this day, it sends shivers down my spine as to why and how, because you know, I could say, uh, yeah, when I was in, held in a secret location by the Pakistanis, I did pray, I did find the time to pray, but there's periods of time when I, it was impossible when you've been transported. The way they transport you is a hood over your head, your hands shackled either in front of you or behind you. But the way they'd done it here on the US plane was unbelievable. So just imagine the scene, you're, you're dragged through by these soldiers, huge soldiers with your arm twisted behind you like this on both sides. They push you onto the plane, there's dogs barking, there's the roar of the engines, it's this big C-130 transport military plane. There's soldiers screaming at you, cursing at you in Urdu, in Arabic, in Pashto, words, languages they don't know, but they've learned these just so they can make you feel really bad. Um, there's flashes of the camera, I've got a hood over my head, it's made of cloth, but I can make out the flashes. They're taking trophy pictures of us. And in the midst of all of this, while I'm tied down to the ground of this plane with a strap across my legs and my hands and legs shackled, I, I sense that there's a person to my left. And he says, Salaam alaikum. I said, Wa alaikum salam. Uh, we asked each other where we're from and so forth in Arabic. And then he said these words, these magical words, Hal salayta salat al and I thought to myself, how could you think mm. of this right now? Mm. Mm. He says, have you prayed your Maghrib prayer? And not just, so he's inferring from that, that I prayed my Dohar prayer or my Asr prayer. Mm -hmm. He's inferring that because he's thinking, well, this guy probably hasn't missed all his other prayers. But I probably, I, I can't even remember now. I'm sure I must have missed them. In, 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 yet he comes along and he reminds me of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's words. So powerful. In the salat, that prayers were prescribed at the fixed times. Time, yeah. And he says it then. He's, he doesn't care about anything else around him. He cares about the prayer. Right. He doesn't say, where are, they, where are they taking us? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think they're going to kill us? Who are these people? He doesn't say anything like that. He asks me who I am. And then he asks, have I prayed? And my response is, brother, you're on the left. So you're the imam, you lead the prayer. Now at this precise moment, an American soldier senses that we're talking. And of course, talking is not allowed. So he comes along, he takes out a knife and he puts it to my throat. And he says, if you speak again, and he swears, I will slit your throat. And again, irony of ironies. At that very point, the brother says, Allahu Akbar. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, that's it. We're in the state of prayer. Slit my throat. See if you can. See if it makes any difference to me. Because to me, that would be the best death mm, that I could have. Um, and we complete our prayer like this. And the only movement we can do is the taslim. Salaam alaikum wa rahmatullah. That's the only movement. Nothing else. No wuquf. No rafa'al yadayn. No ruku, no sajda, nothing, just the sleep. That's all that we can do. And it was natural to this brother to do this. It was natural. And of course, all of these verses, they keep coming back to your mind. And you remember, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala those who remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala standing, sitting, or lying down, it doesn't really matter. The, in the end, it's just what Allah subhanahu wa has told you to do. It Allah Fear Allah as much as you can, and the rest is with Him. What excuses do we have to suffer? Like huge. you're in captivity, and here you are. Subhanallah. You know that's that's a crazy thought to have. Like in the midst of everything, it's just like I still have to pray. 
And subhanAllah, I want to move along to your experience in Bagram. I know from a previous interview that you memorized Surah Al-Baqarah whilst in captive in Bagram. And Bagram, as we understand, was probably the worst part of your experience. You said that you saw two people beaten to death in this prison facility. If I can even call it a prison facility where torture was taking place and, 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 and many more crimes. How were you able to, I guess, not only memorize Surah Al-Baqarah for one, but stay sane and, you know, be somewhat productive in the moment, I guess. You know, brother, I have to tell you, I, I, I wrote a book and my, my, my book is called Enemy Combatant. And I begin the book with a dream. In the dream I see, the dream is 1994. I see myself in like a prison facility walking around. And to, you know, to cut a long story short, uh, I, I see a vision. And that vision, in, included in that vision, in that dream, is, is, is a mention that I'm not going to get to see my child that is born. And it also, in, in this dream, it, it, a voice comes to me, raise your hands to the heavens and ask Allah to remove you from this, to deliver you from this, this uh, humiliation. And I woke up from that dream in tears, told my wife, it's the only dream I'd ever had that I ever told her. And then when I, when I walked into Bagram, I looked around and said, Allahu Akbar, this is the place I saw seven years ago in my dream. It's the same place. And, and so there was already some kind of a, weird spiritual connection this place was built by the soviet union you could still see the writing of the soviets here i met and i was in prison with a brother called sharif who's a young afghan man and i remember to this day that what he told me and what he told the american soldiers he said you know my father was buried alive by soviet occupation forces just outside of bagram prison do you think that his son now that you've occupied this land is going to submit to you and so when you think about bagram bagram now has been retaken it's the the, the culprits as it were those who were involved in the war crimes uh, american in particular have left and it is back in the hands of afghan back in the hands of taliban or the islamic emirate and in this place i remember just two weeks ago there's a brother who was imprisoned with me in bagram that's where i met him he sent me a video he said brother i'm here in the same dungeon where you and I met before. This is, I'm here now, and he's filming. He's saying, look, these are the rooms, this is the places, this is where the torture took place, this is where a brother was killed. And he's telling me, he said, could you ever dream or imagine that we could come back in here one day where uh, those who had tortured us have run away? And uh, Mm. so you see, brother, like, uh, yes, I saw a taxi driver murdered by American soldiers. Innocent and the shock, that. Mm. Uh, completely. Of course, everybody there is innocent because they're not charged with a crime and they're not. They're not subject to a fair trial. To proven guilty. They're mm. not con- the, the concept of innocence or guilty doesn't doesn't exist. There's no mm. lawyers. There's no court. There's no jury. There's no judge. There's nothing. You're just there. And of course, he was innocent. They found out later that he had done nothing, but they'd killed him. And the shocking part of why they killed him. Listen to this. They took him to uh, an interrogation cell upstairs. I've, I've discovered all of this afterwards. Um, and the, his hands were tied up and they started to kick him on his legs. And every time they kicked him, he said, Allah, Allah. So they found it amusing that he says, Allah, Allah. So they kicked him in his leg over a hundred times that no, night no, no, no. and caused his blood to clot in his leg. And that's how he died. Um, right. So Bagram was a horrible place. It was a 
was a horrific place where salah in jama'ah wasn't allowed, where we were not allowed. I didn't make wudu for one year. No, you know. I did tayammum. Tayammum, if you have understood the importance of tayammum, they gave you water either to drink, and if you want to use it to wash, you've got no water to drink. So you choose. Uh, and so in that place, I learned Surah Al-Baqarah, and that was the happiest day of my life when I completed its memorization. Allah Akbar. Did you have a mushaf? You had a mushaf available in, in the facility? Yeah, alhamdulillah. We all had, we all had masahif. Um, in the beginning, however, the American soldiers ripped those masahif up no, into no, pieces no. and threw them into the toilet or spat on them or kicked them or urinated on them no, no, in no. front of us. And there's another part of this story is that when they did that in Guantanamo, we returned the Quran to them and said, do not use me as an excuse to try to desanctify this book. My brother who has memorized it will teach me through his mouth mm. uh, the way that the Prophet ﷺ taught his companions. So people still memorize the Quran, though they try to abuse and desecrate it. Without the Mus'haf, subhanAllah. Without the Mus'haf, yeah. So you went on to Guantanamo after spending almost a year in Bagram, you went to Guantanamo. And from what I understand, there is a psychological warfare in terms of the mechanisms used against the prisoners in Guantanamo. Not you just had, physical. Yeah, it's, it's more so than physical. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that you had three steps forward, three steps back. I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine that for two years. Was it two years you were held in, in solitary confinement? Yeah. Yes, I was. Uh, uh, yeah, literally. Yes, two steps forward, three steps forward, three steps back. There's no more space. That's it. That, that's all you can do. There's your cell is your bedroom. It is your toilet. It is your sitting room. It's your everything. That's all you've got. Eight foot by six foot, twenty-four mm -hmm. hours a day, four hours a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. And how do you remain sane? Like uh, we went like crazy in lockdown, and people had nice houses. People had nice backyards they could go to. People were going crazy in the COVID lockdown. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing is that the human soul doesn't know what it can take until it is presented with these tests. So we can say, I don't know how I would do this. Now I don't know how I would do that. That's because you've not been in it. But once you're in it, you are forced. You're forced to deal with it. And there's one or two outcomes. One is either you lose the fight against what's happened to you or you stay above it. And all is from the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a beautiful saying of Ibn Taymiyyah, which I remember, memorized before I was in prison. Wherever I go, uh, my heart, what can my enemies do for me, do to me, because wherever I go in my heart and my chest is my paradise. That imprisoning me is khalwa, is time for solitude and meditation with my Lord. And killing me is martyrdom and throwing me, expelling me from my home is tourism. And so I saw this as an opportunity. Of course, not always. I was, yeah. Iman goes up and down. But I thought this is the time that I can learn things that I could never have. Memorizing aspects of the Quran contemplating on the words and the meanings in a way that I never did before, writing words of poetry. From, they used to give us a pen that was that big mm. um, to write, uh, sometimes penning letters to family, which would take six to seven months to get to them, uh, formulating my thoughts, just trying to use the solitude. And 
use time. I've never done as much ibadah uh, or trying to get too close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as when I was a prisoner. And that's something you can't, you'll never be able to replace it. So you thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving you that opportunity, that space, that time, because you don't get it. You rarely get it in, mm. in the hustle and bustle of daily life. I guess in a world of infinite distraction, infinite overstimulation, social media, we're constantly distracted. To be in that state of solitude, and of course, I'm no way, I mean, no way underestimating or undermining the the pain that, that the like the severe pain one might go through in that situation. Inhumane torture. So. But to be able to, I guess, reflect on the ayat of the Quran, surely they would have a deeper meaning to you. Like for instance, We will test you with something of fear. For the average Australian or for the average person in UK, we've never really experienced something like fear or or the, the, some of the topics that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings up in the Quran. So to be and live in that situation, surely it would have a much more profound impact on yourself. Uh, of course it is, you know, and, and I think most every prisoner, you know, some people that they, they ask, they, they say, uh, laughingly or jokingly, uh, that I, I, I'm a graduate of, of, of the University of Yusuf. And if you don't understand what that means, it means that Yusuf was known for being a prisoner and he's placed into prison for a crime he doesn't commit. And in my, in my estimation of it, he's thrown into, first into a, a well, which is like a solitary confinement place. And then after that, he's thrown into prison and accused of a crime he doesn't commit. But if he doesn't go through that process, how can he say to his brothers who wronged him, how could he even say that? He's not in a position. He has to go through that. He has to go through all of those tests. He must be in prison where he may interprets those dreams. And then once that happens, his qadr is written. And the very thing that took him away from his father now places him back, which becomes the ultimate interpretation of the dream, uh, uh, which his father, which he sees and tells to his father in the beginning. And his ability to say, there is no vengeance upon you this day, gives him even more power, gives him even more strength. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the, when I come to the, every time I, I used to read it again and again, every time I came to that, because I, I'm thinking, connecting myself to that story and thinking, how do, I, how do I relate to it? But when he comes back and he says, no vengeance upon you this day, I burst into tears every time I read it. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. I think it's also during this time when you're going, enduring these hardships, but your own father was probably one of the strongest advocates for you back home in the UK. Um, I, I've seen an interview of his where he's continue, continuously pressed. And I think you too, uh, both of you, I see you're like in the sense that you remain calm in the face when they're pressurizing you to answer these questions and i think um you stated one point i think you were accused of building nuclear bombs or whatever it may be and your father said my son no, no he was never good at science what how what what was it like um i would guess okay yeah so the story actually is even it's, it's even more bizarre than that there was a, a story leaked in, in, in by some uh, i don't know who it was somebody in guantanamo to say that i was planning on building drone aircraft. Now, this is way before drones were even known to carry weapons mm -hmm. um, back in 2000 odd. Uh, and so I was pioneering to build a drone aircraft, fill them with weaponized anthrax and fly them 
from Suffolk, which is, you know, you know where Suffolk is, it's quite far. Why Suffolk, I don't know, because uh, it's quite quite a distance, about three, four hundred miles from London. Um, uh, and then I was going to fly them into the Houses of Parliament to attack the Parliament. So when my father was asked this question at a press conference, and again, this was kind of the genius of the man, Rahimullah, may Allah subhanahu wa grant him mercy and forgive his sins. Mm-hmm. He, he, his response was, well, Mr. Begg, what do you say uh, if, about the allegation that your son was doing this? He said, well, you know, if my son did that, I'm actually very proud of him. And they, they were shocked. Why we, would you be so proud of something so terrible? He said, well, you see, my son was rubbish at physics, chemistry, and <laughs> biology at school. And now you're saying he's an expert in all three. And he just like that, he laughed it off. And everybody laughed at the ludicrous nature of that uh, allegation. Uh, and that's where it was left. But uh, sometimes that's what you have to do. Just ridicule this foolishness. I think your father also stated it's uh, when, you were, when you were accused of such a thing. But he said it's you were fit. You fitted the crime just because you had a maybe you wore like your your bear and you had a long beard. And I think that's the vilification, that stigmatization that many of us, even myself growing up, it's, subhanAllah, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. You, you touched on something very powerful, uh, Mu'azzam, when you said that when you read the ayah, لا تثريب عليكم اليوم, and when you read the story of the forgiveness that Yusuf had to his brothers, that touches you very deeply. And within your own story, we also see the parallels whereby you were able to, and I'm going to be very cautious in the way that I say this, but you did forgive at least some of the guards. So what was that yeah. like coming to that stage? Yeah, that's a very good question. I forgave all who ever asked. Yes. Anybody who yes. ever asked for forgiveness, with the rev- I gave With the out. reservation, yes. Yeah, the reservation was for th- this, that I cannot forgive for what has been done to somebody else. I cannot mm. forgive you for what you did to somebody else. I can forgive you for what you did to me a hundred times. And uh, uh, so, and these were ordinary soldiers, black, white, Hispanic, um, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, whatever you want to call them, from all the parts of America, who showed humanity, who not only did that, they came and a couple of them, uh, in fact, I know at least three, there's perhaps more, but I know, I know three for sure, four, in fact, including another one, uh, who became Muslims, who took the shahada. One took his shahada right there in Guantanamo, Mustafa, um, and others, they took the shahada afterwards, uh, Steve Wood, uh, Chris Arendt, uh, Sister Sonia. I mean, the story of Sister Sonia is amazing because she contacted me on Facebook and she said, uh, you know, brother, were you in Guantanamo? And I was surprised to say, yes, I was. She said, so was I. And I said, well, there were no female uh, prisoners there. She said, I wasn't a prisoner. I was one of your guards. And mm-hmm. she said that when I, when I saw uh, the brothers in Guantanamo uh, and how they dealt with difficulty, when I saw uh, tribulations and dealt with that, I turned to boys, alcohol, drugs, drink, and so forth. Uh, but you only turned to your faith. And in that, you became stronger and connected and you strengthened, your strength radiated onto other more weaker prisoners. So I, I was, I was as, a, as a Christian, I had never seen something like this and how strongly you felt held onto your faith. So please go back and tell the brothers that I am one of your sisters today. Allah. And I took my shahada. I took my shahada when I came back and studied about Islam. Allah. 
the strengths that you gain through Islam, no other worldly avenue can give you that strength that you find through Islam. Just the, the faith yeah. in Allah, the faith in the unseen. Like they're like, we're imprisoning you. We've put bars around you. We've done this. But they're just seeing the physical manifestation of the prison. They're not realizing the unseen. You know, we're not in prison. <laughs> we're and I've got to tell you something. I was imprisoned with a, with a, with an Australian too. I was in the same cell block with him and I talked to him quite often uh, and his name is David Hicks and he had a difficult time and uh, struggled with many things. But he said something one day which has resonated, always resonates with me. Precisely at Maghrib time, at, uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, at, at sunset, uh, the Americans, uh, the American military plays the national anthem, uh, the sound of the national anthem on very loud speakers. Now that's Maghrib time, yeah, right? Yeah, and they are required by, by, by protocol, they have to stop what they're doing, the soldiers, face this giant flag that's in the middle of Guantanamo, and they have to salute it like this. Mm-hmm. At that exact time, to salute, it's important. Mm-hmm. Exactly at the same time, one of the brothers or several of the brothers, depending on which blocks they are, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, they're doing it as loud as possible. So this battle for the airwaves between <laughs> US, US and national anthem and the other. And David Hicks said something profound, profound. He said, one group of people is saluting the object of their devotion and worship. And the other group of people that's dressed in orange are saluting and worshipping the object of their devotion. So whilst they're doing this, we're doing this, Allahu Akbar, and we're facing the East and they're facing the West. And it's just this, wow, this 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 moment, and it happens every day, still happens in Guantanamo. And Guantanamo is still open. I remember, I think, Obama, when he was coming to office, I think he was writing on the vote that he would actually close down Guantanamo, and clearly it's still open, and Biden has promised that he's going to close it down, but it's still open. Um, I, I even with the you know the torch that takes it with Dick Cheney, of course, he was a. I'm so sorry, but it, the things that he supported were vile, and I don't think anybody could disagree with me um, in that. And you, I think you, we often hear that uh, under torture, if it's not organ failure or death, you know, it's it's not torture. What did they achieve? Right. So, so yeah. So this is this is so you have to understand that they developed a torture program. Uh, particularly with prisoners like Abu Zubaydah, who's still in Guantanamo. This was developed by psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, um, and they themselves had gone and looked at uh, uh, what the Koreans had done, the North Koreans had done, and used their techniques and the CIA, uh, what what uh, they took from other conflict zones, and they started to experiment on Muslim prisoners there. The shocking part was, wasn't that it was just developed by psychiatrists who were actually doctors, and the doctors give the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, right? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's what every doctor has to, to give before they uh, administer. But also, as you said, it was the lawyers. It was Alberto Gonzalez, the, the most senior legal advisor to the US government, who with his undersecretaries said that if it's not organ failure, severe physical impairment or death, then it's not torture. That is what gave the justification to the CIA and to the torture programmers um, to say, okay, you can do what you want. You won't be prosecuted. You'll be protected because you're not actually torturing people. And that's why they could use a medieval torture technique called waterboarding, tortura del agua, which is actually means torture of the water, mm-hmm. make people feel like they're drowning uh, and say, you know what, that's not torture. That's just enhanced interrogation. And this was all set up. You know, it was crafted 
by the architects of the war on terror, of whom Dick Cheney was a key player. And they would force feed you as well. I don't know. It was it twice a day. I think they would force feed inmates. I've seen, there's a video on YouTube that people can watch of uh, Yassine Bey, or most commoners, uh, Mosdef, who was actually, you know, they strapped, they, they did the whole thing and they strapped him up and they they forced this tube like down his, down his nose. And you they they're there for a good couple 20 seconds 20 30 seconds and they're just pushing the wire pushing the wire pushing the wire up to the point he's saying you know it's burning me it's burning me so you can only you don't even have to imagine you can see that you can actually see the inhumane practices that actually took place and another thing you mentioned is that upon your entry to one of the detention centers the guards would take photos and you said it as a trophy um trophy photos but if you could explain a bit more on that personally i I, I can't get over the fact, what is there to, I can't put myself in the mindset, why were they take, why were they obsessed with these photos, of taking these photos? So you've got to remember, the time was 9-11. Uh, they were told that all of these people, including all of us, anybody, and mostly soldiers, had never been outside of their states, let alone into a different country. Or, uh, so they believed that all of these guys, dark-skinned Muslims, beards, etc., uh, they're all somehow involved. They, they all they can all speak English, just pretending not to. They're all involved in terrorism, though they're lying. So it's a full suspicion. Like it's sort of then gone like a hundred times crazy. Mm-hmm. And what they're, they're, they're saying is that, you know, we're going to send pictures back home to our family members saying, you know, we got those guys. And that's what it was. They were taking pictures of us with American flags hanging over us. They were, if you heard, saw the pictures of Abu Ghraib, um, what happened in Iraq, just bear in mind that General Jeffrey Miller, who I met several times and saw him, was in charge of detainee operations in Guantanamo. After he'd finished his role of the torture program in Guantanamo, they moved him to Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker. And this is so important for you guys to listen to. In Abu Ghraib and Camp Booker, they did the torture not just on men, but also on women, rape physical and sexual violation of children in front of their parents. This is all documented. I'm not making this up. And this happened in Iraq. uh, And they did what's known as the Guantanamoization of the detainee process. In the camps, Camp Booker in particular, you had members of of Saddam Hussein's former government meet with members of Al-Qaeda who came to fight against um, the occupation. And in those cages, they developed a group called ISIS. That's where it was born. And that's how it was born. 17 of ISIS members were held in Camp Booker and Abu Ghraib. And they went on to become its leaders. So that's so important because for in terms of when you want to connect this to accountability, where did this happen from? Why did it happen? Who's been held to account? There has been no accountability process. And of course, Muslims en masse take the blame you're all involved because it's your faith but there's no sense of saying who who actually caused it who's involved in this chain of causation Mm. um which is something that that i do and often talk about and document and you've mentioned this as well uh, if i can just read a quote that you said before you said through their lies they caused the disintegration of iraq and the rise of al-quds and ultimately its metamorphosis isis Uh, and then you also said the, the narrative we hear so often that it is about our belief, our religion, but it's not about that. And it's what about you've been doing, torturing, bombing, and killing and imprisoning. So it's 
And you actually went to Syria as well. Was it early 2013, 2014? 2012, 2013. Yes, indeed, I did. And uh, I did see some people who eventually did. I know that they ended up becoming part of ISIS. And there's no doubt about this trigger. Repeatedly, you can see it. This is not to put all the blame on the West, because there are Muslims who do have this twisted ideology, and it needs to be tackled from within our uh, Islamic belief system. But there's no, of course, if you disintegrate countries and make them into a situation that becomes a breeding ground uh, for such ideologies, and where uh, you can see this is not from normal Islam, this is not from Islam to make the fear or to, to pronounce Muslims out of the fold of Islam and to kill them and to bomb them and to burn them alive and to blow them up and drown them. And uh, so this kind of butchery, of course, is very shocking. Uh, but had these countries been still stable and not invaded, not occupied, of course, it wouldn't have descended and disintegrated into this type of uh, lawless world. Uh, and afterwards, you can walk away and say, mission accomplished. So was the mission to destroy these people and make, create organizations like this? I don't know. Mm. I mean, there was nothing Islamic about Islamic State. Uh, yeah. Islamic State anyway. And, and the, I guess the saddest part about this whole narrative in and of itself is the fact that there is no accountability. Like those that gave rise to the conditions that brought us groups like ISIS, uh, people like uh, Dick Cheney, people like Colin Powell, who went to the United Nations Security Council and convinced them to invade Iraq, people like Donald Rumsfeld, the architect of the $6 trillion uh, forever war, they were never held to account. And George Bush is enjoying his life. He was never held to account. He will never be held to account. And this realization that worldly justice has its limitations, I guess, is something which is... Uh, an important concept that we as Muslims need to understand or even the the greater world needs to understand at times we will never see justice unfold in this life but then that's yeah. why we uh, have you, yeah hmm. you're absolutely 100 100% correct and i can tell you as somebody who's been involved in a multitude of processes giving evidence to the international criminal court for america's role and the torture and the murder of, of prisoners that i saw giving evidence here giving evidence at a uh, war crimes tribunal in malaysia giving evidence to the police over here for the role of the British intelligence services in torture, which is a war crime. Uh, I've been involved in so many processes, and I can tell you every single time they have escaped uh, any kind of accountability, every time. And so you can only conclude this is that although these nations say that they are nations of laws, when it comes to self-accountability of such matters, they are above the law. And I'll give you one example, right? We the International Criminal Court is recognized by you know, uh, several hundred countries and uh, as a body that holds governments to account. When they sought to investigate America, America threatened, and this is under Donald Trump's time, they said any member of the International Criminal Court that tries to investigate our role in Afghanistan will be arrested if they try to come to America, will be put under sanctions and on no-fly list. And they did that to Chief Prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda. Imagine that. So they dropped that, the, the ICC dropped that prosecution and instead said, you know what, we're going to now investigate the Taliban. And so you can see uh, this massive double standard. Mm, and so really what it tells you is that if you're strong enough, if you've got enough power, if you've got enough nuclear military force uh, and conventional forces, 
you can pretty much tell anybody dictate anything. So this, in the end, is not about values, morals, ethics. It's about, you know, whoever has the biggest stick. I guess we find solace in the fact that there will be a day when Allah will say, "Liman al-mulk to whom belongs the, the authority today, Allah. to whom belongs the the rule today. And on that day, we yeah. will see, sarair, you know, the day when yeah. all secrets will be revealed. For there are so yeah. many secrets in the war on terror, the forever war, the Iraq invasion. Allah, the Afghan I mean, war. All this will be absolutely. revealed. Absolutely. Lillahi al-mulk, lillahi al-wahid al-qahar. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in the end, that's really what it is. Ultimate justice. We can't mm-hmm. seek ultimate justice here. We can only try our best. Mm-hmm. But we know ultimate justice will come with the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he holds the, the, the tyrants to account mm-hmm. and you will we, we will then see the justice of Allah yeah. uh, and so we must I agree we, we must there's we can never uh, be despondent mm-hmm. we should never give up we should never think oh there's there's no hope there's always hope mm-hmm. and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wa'ad his, his promise is uh, that he will hold these people to account mm-hmm. and inshallah that will be part of our uh, recompense on Yom and I just love what you said there and I don't want to keep it going too long just in case of time but I love what you said there how you said we must still try our best and when I look at your story uh, from a, a personal perspective I have to say I give you props because someone like you I see is doing his best you know Oxford Union you've even uh, garnered the support of people like Russell Brand uh, people in high places and you've been able to I guess, push the message, push the truth as much as you can, even if there is a, a line that we can never cross because of, you know, world powers that have too much control, but do your best. And I have to give you props for that. You know, that ihsan you have shown the world through activism is something which is commended and at the same time, something which is inspiring for all of us. I mean, you know, I've, I have a team behind me, a team of amazing uh, brothers and sisters uh, in the organization Cage who fight, who campaign, who work, who uh document who uh list who uh, uh advocate uh, and these brothers and sisters mashallah here based in the uk have been uh, a wonderful source of support for this work so i pray that allah subhanahu wa accepted from them and raises their their, their positions as uh, brother kamal was saying we could honestly speak with you all day but one of the just to quickly uh to close this thing uh one of the first times I actually came across you is that I was actually doing some research on the case of Dr. Afia Siddiqui. And I had seen this interview of yours and I said, wow, this is a very well-spoken man, very well-spoken man. And I, I think we had used a tweet of yours uh, regarding your support for Dr. Afia and showing your support for Dr. Afia. And I did some more research. So I said, you know, this is an interesting, very interesting man that we would have to get on. But I guess the trials that you endured are still you know, trials that people are still enduring, such in the case as Dr. Dr. Afia Siddiqui. May Allah make it easy for her. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, indeed, it is. Dr. Afia Siddiqui is, is, is one of the, the most important cases, especially because it's gone on for so long. And really, um, there is no justification at all, not legal, not moral, not ethical, uh, for her to be in prison, to be suffering in this way. Whatever has been done to her has been done uh, with the complicity of governments who should have been uh, trying to support her and, and, and help her rather than uh, punish her for things that even grown men who've committed serious crimes haven't been punished for. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, free her, release her, bring her back to her mm-hmm. children uh, and allow her to live out her days uh, in peace and harmony. Amen.
Jazakallah khairan for that Mu'azzam beg. It was, a, it was an honor, it's a privilege, privilege. an eye-opener and something which was riveting for myself. You know, you went, you took us to places which made us feel uncomfortable, but at the same time, there's stories that need to be told, need to be heard and Must lessons that from. every yeah. Muslim and, and non-Muslim that's watching this needs to learn from. Uh, Jazakallah khairan. Thank you very Barakallah much. Allah, it's it, it, it's uh, um, absolutely my pleasure and particularly because I think it's the first time I've done any interview with the uh, with brothers in Australia that I can remember, or, or in recent times anyway, um, and, and I am I am very impressed by the work of the One Path Network. Mashallah, you guys are uh, unique in in the Dawah, unique in the defense of Muslims, and may Allah Subhanahu wa Taala protect you and uh, uh, can allow you to continue and to uh, raise the profile of Muslims and defend them in all that is good. Allah bless you. Allah bless you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.